listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. Today we continue our series that's leading us into Easter. We're studying the journey of the life of Jesus from the cradle to the cross and some significant events. I know the entire life of Christ was significant. Uh, But the first week of this series, we looked at how a small town kid from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, top of his class in the synagogue, ended up on a criminal's cross. And what put him on the cross was, was was, was not a government. It was not a religion. What put him on the cross was his father's business. That's what was finished. When he completed his father's business on the cross, it, that, that was his love for people. His love for people is what put him on the cross. The, the second week, we looked at the ordination service for Christ as a rabbi at his baptism. As he was baptized by his cousin John, he had the approval of heaven that day. As a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So he had the approval of, of heaven that prepared him for the attack from hell. And, and I told you that the wilderness is not meant to prepare you. I think some people go into the wilderness and, and they think, man, what, what, what is God trying to do in my life right now? How, what is God preparing me for? The wilderness is not meant to prepare you. The wilderness is meant to, to test you. Being prepared with the washing of the word before you get to the wilderness is the key. That's why you're here today, amen? We're being washed with the word today, amen? And last week, Pastor Andrew preached an amazing message in my absence about Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. I I love it because he told us, he said, all you have to do is whatever Jesus tells you to do, and he'll take care of the rest. He's not asking us to turn water into wine, amen? He's not asking us to perform the miracle. He's asking us to do the practical and obedience, and then he will control the supernatural, and, and man, that was so comforting to me. The, the original dream team was the first U.S. Olympic team to include NBA stars. We've got a picture of them here. Um, how many of you were alive and remember this team? How many of you, you were born after 1992? Let me see those hands. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was afraid of that. This, this team won the gold medal in the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, and they dominated the Olympic competition. They beat their eight opponents by an average of 44 points. You cannot speak of the dream team without mentioning three of the game's all-time greats. These are legends. Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, and the great Larry Bird, my personal favorite. All three of them on one team, but besides those three legends, they had Charles Barkley, they had David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, they had Carl Malone, Scottie Pippen, Chris Mullen, Clyde Drexler, John Stockton. Greats. You know, the weakest link on on this team was Christian Leitner, who had just won a national championship with Duke University and was the NCAA Player of the Year. And when you study this team, you'll realize their opponents never stood a chance, never had a chance. These 12 men were simply the best in the world. This was the original dream team. Anyone agree with me? Yeah. The weakest link on that team was tougher than LeBron, but let's move on. Okay. I knew I could get a rise out of some of you. In the business world... And listen, this is not a motivational speech this morning, okay? I don't want anyone to to fall into that trap, but listen to me. In the business world, it's encouraged to recruit a dream team. 
If you want to have success in the business world, surround yourself with, with, with a great team. Every great leader knows if you want to be successful, you surround yourself with men and women who are sharp and they're capable of leading the organization to the next level. You're only as good as the people around you, right? You're only as good as the people around you. A dream team will expedite the road to success because they are good at what they do. So if you want a great law firm, then you recruit the brightest young lawyers. If you want a great hospital, then you hire the best doctors and you hire the best nurses. If you want a great church, you hire the most talented pastors. I have no idea why you hired me. Oh, you didn't. That's right. That's right. You just came along for the journey, right? Um, in, in Tampa, in Tampa, when, when I was on staff at a university church in Tampa, there was a group of us guys that we liked to play flag football. And uh, now, remember, I was much younger then, much younger. Um, and, and we liked to play flag football. And in our church, we had a couple of Tampa Bay Bucks players that attended our church. And one of them, his name was Aname Ojo. And Aname became a pretty good friend of mine. Um, it, it's one of those neat things that you get to see, you know, behind the curtain, you get to see behind the scenes a little bit. And I remember Aname had this, this AMC card. Um, and anytime he wanted to go to the movie theater, actually it was a Bucks player card is what it was. And it was good at AMC theaters. It was good at, at, uh, uh certain restaurants. And, and there were a few times when I was able to go with him to the movies, he'd present the card and everyone just walks in like nobody pays. We all just just go right in. Same thing with restaurants and, and such like that. I mean, it doesn't seem fair, does it? You're like, why them? But, but nevertheless, Anime decided he was going to play flag football with a bunch of us rookies one day. And so he shows up at, at this soccer field where we all decided to meet up at. And um, I was, was one of the captains. And so we picked our teams. And uh, of course, I had first pick. And I picked the best. I mean, the rest of these men, they were, they were out of shape, armchair quarterbacks. They were amped up on adrenaline before the game even started, and I knew this is going to be a massacre. So I picked Aname. Aname was on my team, and he was a man among boys. I mean, unbelievable. His, his cuts were sharp. This guy, his speed was next level. He even showed up carrying a Tampa Bay Bucks bag, he was wearing one of his game jerseys with Tampa Bay Bucks shorts. He put on team-issued cleats. And, and, man, we're all out there like our baggy shorts and our, you know, frumpy T-shirts. You know, we're, we're ready, man. We're ready. And, and he, he's just like stud, standing a head taller than the rest of us. And that guy showed out. If you want to win, pick the best. And we won. After Jesus was set forth as a rabbi, you would think that he would pick the best. I mean, after all, he, he would eventually leave the most important, life-changing message in their hands. So if you're going to leave the most important message that the world has ever heard, if you're going to leave that in anyone's hands, you think that you would pick the best of the best. I mean, the spread of the gospel is going to be entrusted into their care and, and, and he would need to pick the most articulate, successful businessmen. I mean, they got that entrepreneur spirit and, and, and great salesmen. I mean, you think that's who he's going to pick. People who can close the deal, right? I mean, if I'm going to talk to someone about their eternity, then you need to pick someone that can close the deal. That They, they can convince someone they need Jesus and they can lead them to the cross, right? But, but, but if the rabbi believed that that, that student 
that was studying in the local synagogue, if they didn't have what it, what it, what it took to become a disciple, he would dismiss them and then they would go home and they would continue in their family business. I've taught on that before. I'm not going to dig into that too much. But if the rabbi believed that the student had what it, what it took, then he would say these words. Rabbis would say these words to them. Come, follow me. He would walk up to that student and he would say, come, follow me. This was the selection process. Like, like, I want you to be a disciple of mine. Come, follow me. And it was a huge honor for the student turned disciple to be chosen by a rabbi because they had worked their whole life for this. They, they had studied for years for this moment. And at the moment that they were selected, they would leave their home, they would leave their village, they would leave their friends, and they would follow their rabbi. They would give up their whole life just to be with and, and to be just like their rabbi. One early Jewish, Jewish sage said it like this. He said, cover yourself with the dust of your rabbi's feet. Cover yourself with the dust of your rabbi's feet. Here, here's the thought. A good disciple would walk so close to the rabbi that at the end of the day, they would be covered by the dust that the rabbi's feet had stirred up. That's how closely they followed that they were covered in the dust that the rabbi's feet stirred up as they walked along the road. So now the time had come. Jesus, the rabbi, now he could pick his dream team. So we, we know what the qualifications should look like, right? The best of the best, and he's got this opportunity. Now, now there's this misconception about the choosing of the disciples, and, and there are a few instances that are recorded in Scripture that lead us to believe that Jesus only chose 12 disciples. The truth is, Jesus called many to follow him. You remember the rich young ruler that could not follow Jesus? He, Jesus invited him, come, come do an internship with me. But, but he couldn't give up his possessions. He couldn't give up his riches. And, and, and he, 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 he was not part of the discipleship team that, that Jesus had following him. And so there were many that were called, but we only read of a few. It's kind of like this. It's, it's like the NFL draft. Any football fans in the room? Anyone? Any NFL fans in the room? They're getting fewer and farther between. I understand. Um, it, it's kind of like the NFL draft. There are approximately 259 total picks in each year's draft. Obviously, we don't remember all of them. But, but if they stand out, if that player stands out, if that player excels... Then they go down in history as one of the best that has ever been drafted. People like Jerry Rice, drafted by the 49ers, first round, 16th pick in the 1985 draft. Players like Joe Montana, also of the 49ers. I mean, you got to have a quarterback that can throw to that receiver, right? Third round, 82nd pick, 1979 draft. Players like Lawrence Taylor, first round, second pick, 1981 draft, drafted by the Giants. Or Tom Brady. Here's the big mystery. Sixth round. 199th pick in the 2000 draft. Drafted by the Patriots. Doesn't make sense at all. But goes down as probably the GOAT. I don't... There it is. All right. Like the greats of the NFL draft, the, scripture, the scriptures really only describe the calling of some significant disciples. But there are others. There's hundreds of them. We, we see it numerous times that there's hundreds of disciples that were following Christ. 
But in Luke chapter 1, in Luke chapter 1, which is where I'm going to be reading from today, Luke chapter 1, there's this large group of disciples that are, are following Jesus, but then there's this significant event where Jesus handpicks from that large group of disciples. And I want to read this to you today. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter. And Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew. And Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus. And Simon, who was called the Zealot. And Judas, the son of James. And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, it's very important that you don't get the two Judases confused here. Because one, one guy... Um, was, well, he betrayed Christ. The other one, I'm sure he wanted to change his name after that went down. I mean, it's like, man, I'm not that Judas. I'm not that one. Look it up. Wikipedia, whatever you got to do. I'm not that guy. Make sure you get us, you don't get us confused, right? When the time came, church, for, for Jesus to choose 12 men out of perhaps 100 or more who were following him, Luke tells us that Jesus spent the night in prayer Because this was certainly not a decision to take lightly. Church, I need you to listen to me. It doesn't matter your age, how young you are, how old you are. Everyone has to do this. In choosing who you surround yourself with, people that have close proximity to your life, you need to cover that in prayer. You need to cover in prayer who has close proximity to you in your life. In other words... The people that can speak into your life, the people who, whom you go to for advice, the people who you share your, your dark secrets with, the people who, who you share your concerns with, you need to cover that in prayer because not, not just anyone and everyone needs to be allowed into your inner circle to give you that kind of advice. You need people who are going to pray with you. So as you pray, you pray, God, send me people who will pray with me, who will help guide me, and and, and people who will point me towards you and the life that you've called me to live. You've got to cover this in prayer. You can't soar with eagles and hang out with turkeys. You can't run with the big dogs sitting on the porch with the lap dogs. You can't do that. It doesn't work like that. The people we surround ourselves with will either carry you to your destiny or they will carry you to your doom. And you've got to choose that wisely. So pray, pray, God, you send the people into my life that, that, that I need to surround myself with. Jesus spent time in prayer. He, is, he, he has dozens, if not a hundred or more disciples at this moment that are following him. Every day they want to learn, they want to glean from him. But, but, but Jesus is handpicking the 12 that will be the closest to him, the ones that he will call the apostles. Now, why did Jesus choose 12? Why not 10 or 20? Why 12? You see, throughout Scripture, 12 seems to be a significant number all throughout the Bible. It it comes to represent the number of God's governmental foundation. All throughout Scripture, when you read the number 12, it's all about his governmental foundation. There were, were, were 12 tribes in Israel. There were 12 stones on, on the high priest's breastplate. They sent 12 spies into the promised land. In in heaven, it it tells us that there are 12 gates and 12 foundations to the new holy city, New Jerusalem. 
And then Jesus chose 12 apostles because there is a specific duty that he has called them to. When we take a close look at this, this group that was chosen, they don't appear to be a dream team. They, they were more like the bad news bearers. If you had to describe this ragamuffin bunch, they were more like the bad news bearers than they were the dream team. They're just a bunch of misfits is all that they are. Jesus, he, he had the responsibility to choose 12 men that would be called to alter the course of human history, but he didn't recruit scholars like you would think that he would. He, he, he didn't look within the religious establishment to build his team. Instead, Jesus assembled a ragtag bunch of men with unimpressive resumes. Like none of their resumes stood out. Jesus wasn't looking for religious superiority or extraordinary talent. Jesus wanted ordinary, everyday people just like me, just like you. Listen, I do not have an impressive resume. I know that. But what I do have is a calling on my life because he chose me. Let's look at these, these men. There, there's two sets of brothers. There's Peter and Andrew and there's James and John, all fishermen. Scripture plainly said they were in the family business. They're all fishermen. According to John chapter 21, Thomas and Bartholomew were probably fishermen too. We know that Matthew was a tax collector. Philip's name meant lover of horses. It's possible that he was a horse breeder. He could have been one of the two disciples that Jesus sent into Jerusalem to find the donkey and a colt. If he was a horse breeder, he probably knew how to take care of them. Judas Iscariot, he seemed like a pretty sharp, a pretty sharp guy. You know, maybe, maybe his resume was a little better than the others. It's possible that he could have been a bookkeeper or an accountant since he was the treasurer for the ministry of Jesus. It, but this goes to show you that the brightest is not always the best because as you'll eventually see, he's going to portray Jesus and sell him for 30 pieces of silver. So probably the one with the best resume was the worst. We're not sure about James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Son of James. We're not sure what they, they did for a living, but the one thing that we do know, they were not qualified to be a disciple of a rabbi because no other rabbi had chosen them. No one else had picked them. And then all of a sudden, this, this rabbi that is extremely unorthodox he comes along and he picks those that were not even still in school. They were not even attending synagogue any longer. And Jesus walks by and says, come, follow me. In other words, I pick you. I want you to come and be a part of this with me. Can you imagine, though? That, uh, you know, it, it was probably hilarious at, front, at, at first. You know, they're, they're probably looking at each other going, can you believe it? He picked me. He picked us. What is he thinking? What is this guy on right now? I mean, why is he picking us? It's probably a little, a little humorous at first, but, but as, as time went on, they realized this guy's serious. He's a real rabbi, and yet he's choosing us. And, and can you imagine how inadequate these men must have felt? Uh, just the act of walking into a synagogue with their rabbi had to be one of the most humbling experiences that one could, could ever imagine. They, they were, uh, they, well, in the, in the synagogue, there were young boys in the synagogue that knew more about God's word than these grown men knew. Because they 
had been kicked out of school, sent on to, to work in the family business. But these young boys are sitting there learning, and they know more than these men. And somewhere along the way, someone had told them that they were not good enough. And, and so they worked the family business being, being, uh, and, and being confronted by scribes and, and priests often probably made them feel very uh, um, un, less capable of, of the others. Because anywhere Jesus went, it felt like he was being questioned by the scribes and Pharisees. And I think at times these disciples, they probably thought, these apostles, they thought, what have we gotten ourselves into? This is a mess. This is a train wreck. Why are we even doing this? Maybe that's why Jesus reminded them in John 15, 16. He said, you didn't choose me. He said, I chose you. He said, this, this isn't up to you. The following me, being a disciple of mine, me appointing you as an apostle, you didn't choose this. Jesus said, I chose you. You see, you showed up today and you thought, man, I, I've got a choice today to go and worship God. And technically you do. But the fact that you're here, you need to understand that he chose you. Listen, he chose me. He cho it doesn't matter your frailty. It doesn't matter what, what your weaknesses are. It doesn't matter what, what sin you committed yesterday or last night. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with in life right now. He says, I choose you. He chooses you, and he chooses you, and he chooses you, and he chooses you, and he chooses you. Section three, he chooses you. You're weak. Section one, he chooses you. There you are right there. Section two. There you are. I don't know why I just did the whole Kogan, but hey, let's do it. Let's go with it. He chooses us. If you only knew my frailty, if you only knew how weak I am. But the scripture says that he counts me faithful, not because of what I've done, but because of everything he's done. And he chooses me. And he looks at the disciples and he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And he reminds them that he does not look at degrees, he doesn't look at credentials, he does extraordinary work through ordinary people. He takes ordinary and he adds the extra to it. Not your extra, his extra. And Jesus took this band of ordinary men and he worked with them for for three years, and he would mentor them, and, and then he would put his church in their hands. Now, let's talk about this just for a moment, the, the difference between disciples and apostles, because it's really simple. Disciples were students. They were following in the rabbi's footsteps, covered with the dust from his feet. Disciples were students. They were learning. They were gleaning. They were trying their best to get all the knowledge that they possibly could from their rabbi. Learning the information. But apostles, apostles were learning to be instructors. They were learning to be teachers. Because the, the Jesus discipleship method, it, it, it looks like this. Follow me. Watch me. Then he brings them alongside and he says, do this with me. And then he says, now you go do it and let me watch you. That is the discipleship method that Jesus Christ used. It's the same thing that we use here. You just don't know it. As we're serving among, uh, on our direction teams, this is, how, this is how we do it. 
Watch me. Now do it with me. Now you go do it. And Jesus is bringing these 12 men along on the journey. And he's saying, I I just don't want you to be covered in my dust. I want you to create some dust of your own. He says, I want you to come do this with me. And at the appointed time, I'm going to release you and I'm going to allow you to go do this also. There were two unique ways that Jesus mentored. The first way was through messages, talks, and the second was through miracles. His messages were different from what other rabbis were sharing. Most rabbis taught that the Old Testament... Uh, through a legalistic mindset. They, they presented the, the do's and don'ts of religion. Rather than using religious rhetoric, Jesus spoke in parables. And, and, and this is what I love about Christ. He, he would use layman terms to teach kingdom principles. And so he would tell the, the parable of the sower. He would tell the parable of the lost sheep. He would tell the parable of the prodigal son uh, and, and the good Samaritan. You see, he was speaking in everyday language that, that the common person could understand. And there are numerous parables that Jesus told recorded in the Gospels, not to mention other conversations and sermons that he shared. He, he didn't teach the do's and don'ts of religion. He, he preached the blessings of relationship. He, he said that it's not what you know, but it's who you know. That was one of the big differences. It, it, it's not what you know, it's who you know. He turned religion upside down with phrases like this, Matthew 6 and 33. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 5 and 44, he said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6 and 37, he said, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Luke 6 and 29, he said, if someone slaps you on the cheek offer the other side also offer the other cheek also if someone demands your coat offer your shirt also mark 10 and 31 he said but many who are first will be last and the last first and then mark 10 and 45 he says for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many but, but probably my favorite in all of this is Mark 16 and 24 when he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is a huge ask. But he looks at these men and he says, if you want to be my disciple, you see, no other rabbi was talking about a cross. No other rabbi is talking because that was a Roman torture device. For those of you that have little cross pendants on your necklace right now, you are wearing a Roman torture device. It would be like me being up here with, a, you know, a, an electric chair hanging around. That's what it was. I know to us, it, it, it's, it's salvation. We know that. But to a first century Jew, it was a Roman torture device. And, and, and Jesus is the only rabbi that's talking about this. He's the only one that's saying anything about the... And he says, if you want to be my disciples, he says, you're going to have to take up your cross and you're going to have to follow me. The disciples may not have been smart enough to memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, like those, those little boys in synagogue. Maybe they weren't smart enough for that, but they were willing to drop everything to follow Jesus. They dropped it all. He also mentored them by his miracles. 
In John chapter 2, we see the disciples were at the wedding in Cana that Pastor Andrew preached about last week. And they watched Jesus turn the water into wine. John chapter 5, they witnessed him heal the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. Mark chapter 1, they watched him heal a leper. Mark chapter 4, they watched him calm the storm when they were afraid. Mark chapter 5, they were there when he healed a demon-possessed man. Mark Mark, Mark chapter 5 also, he raised uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead. In John chapter 6, he fed the 5,000. And they were there in John chapter 11 when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They witnessed all of that. And these are just a few of the miraculous sights that the Bible records and says that the disciples were there to see it. But you get to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There was a purpose for them seeing those miracles take place. They, they saw the miraculous firsthand. They saw the deliverance firsthand. They saw the healings firsthand. They saw the provision firsthand. And he taught them a very valuable lesson on power. That his miracles were never self-serving. Never once did he perform a miracle just to better himself. He used his gift to make other people's lives more valuable. He added value to their lives. He made their lives better. And through messages and miracles, Jesus taught his disciples to go out of their way to minister to others. Man, church, there's something that we should learn from that. We should learn to go out of our way to make other people's lives better. If we could ever get that, maybe, maybe, maybe we could be covered with the dust of our rabbi. We've gotten into this this habit of pointing to the cross. You see, all the way to the cross, Jesus exemplified servanthood. And we've gotten into this bad habit of of pointing to the cross, like from a distance. Like somebody comes to us and they have a need in their life and and we we point to the cross. They come to us and and, and they need deliverance in their life. They they need someone to pray for them. And what we do is is we point to the cross. We're, We're so good at this. Modern day Christianity is so good about pointing to the cross, but but what we need is that we need people to stop pointing to the cross and we need to start leading people to the cross. We've got to start taking them by the hand and saying, follow me as we take up our crosses together and let's go to the cross of Christ because that's where life changes. That's where true change takes place. We've got to stop talking about faith and we've got to start living by faith. One of the greatest signs of mentoring is one's ability to reproduce himself or herself. It's one of the greatest signs of mentoring when you can reproduce your leadership in someone else. Jesus was willing to die for his cause. And he made such an impact on the lives of these apostles that they too were willing to die for the same cause. And they did. Many of them did. At the end of his time of mentoring, Jesus had some final words for his disciples. Matthew 28 and 19, he says, Go therefore and make 
disciples. He told the apostles, I want you to go and make disciples. He commissions them to go and make more disciples. Go reach the ordinary people of this planet. You don't have to go after the elite. God loves them too. But go reach those that are on the fringe. Go reach those who are ostracized. Go reach those that society has deemed unvaluable. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go find the ordinary people of the planet and put this gospel in their hearts. Now, church, I've come to realize that people expect the rabbi, the priest, the preacher to talk about heaven. I'm in my 25th year full-time ministry. I think. It might be 26 now. Who knows? I've been, I feel like I've been saying 25 for 20 years. I've been in this thing a long time. And I know that there's certain places where I show up that they expect me to talk about Jesus. It comes with the territory. But if you can get an ordinary man or woman to talk about Jesus, if you can get the common Joe, the common Julie, to talk about Jesus, to talk about heaven, if you can get ordinary fishermen to talk about heaven, if you can get an ordinary car salesman, an ordinary dental hygienist, an ordinary nurse, if you can get an ordinary teacher to talk about heaven, they will change the world around them. Some of you know my story. I'm, I'm not going to share all of it right now, but I was raised in a pastor's home, yet I strayed far away from God. And it was not a pastor or a biblical scholar or an evangelist that changed my life. It was a full-time travel trailer salesman who just happened to be a part-time youth pastor at the church my dad was pastoring, but he was a full-time travel trailer salesman. His office was not even in the main building. He set up a camper on the lot as his office. And he started instilling God's word into me. And this hunger started developing in my heart and in my life for the word of God. And in my junior year of high school, something switched, something changed. And I started going after school. Sitting in a travel trailer. It sounds crazy. It sounds weird, right? Sitting in a travel trailer on a, on a lot that sells travel trailers with a travel trailer salesman. And we were breaking open the scriptures together and we were reading it together. And this ordinary travel trailer salesman helped me to recognize the call of God that was on my life. If you can get ordinary men and women to talk about God, to talk about Christ, to talk about the cross of Christ, you can change the world. I know that this guy made a huge impact on my life and I'll never be the same because he showed me what it meant to be a Christ follower 
Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.